Father, we thank you for this nice, crisp, cool, clear morning uh, after uh, a rather warm uh, summer. It's, um, it's so nice to be able to enjoy some of this cooler fall weather finally. We're thankful because in every season you're always good. The seasons change, but you do not. And your love and your care for us are steadfast and will never, ever uh, move away from the love that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we continue working our way through the shorter catechism, uh, this wonderful little teaching tool, we pray that it would give us deeper insight into the love that you've shown us in Jesus and what he's done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, folks, so we are continuing our work through the shorter catechism. And uh, just by way of reminder again, our catechisms, as well as our confessions, they are, they are tools, they're teaching tools, they're summaries of what the scripture teaches. We don't believe that the catechisms or the confession are the same as scripture, do not have the authority of scripture, but they are summaries. Anytime somebody asks you, what is it that you believe about Jesus? Who is Jesus or what has he done? The minute you answer that, you've done theology. And if you don't wanna have to repeat it every single time again and again, you might write it down. And if you write it down, you've written a confession. A catechism is just the same thing, but it's done in a simple question and answer format for the sake of helping our children learn. Shorter Catechism was written for kids. There's one called the Larger Catechism. And uh, today, most folks um, probably uh, <laughs> would find the Shorter Catechism a bit of a challenge. What six-year-olds used to uh, learn uh, you know, just uh, not too long ago. But we're working our way through it, and uh, hopefully it'll be a profit to us. So uh, if you don't keep a copy of the Catechism in your front vest pocket, like most people do, uh, you might want to use the Trinity Hymnal. It's in front of you there on page 870, I think is where we're roughly at for question 34. Uh, I don't have it right in front of me, but I'm sure somebody could tell me. So somewhere around page 870, you'll find question 34. And what we've been doing is we've been working our way through the order of salvation. And let's just remember the order of salvation. What is that? Well, the catechism actually makes that clear. Jesus' coming actually accomplishes our redemption. He doesn't buy the potential for us to be saved. He actually dies for his people. He actually pays the price uh, for their sin. And so we call that, you know, Jesus accomplishing redemption. But the Holy Spirit comes at a certain point in time and applies that redemption to your life. You weren't around 2,000 years ago. So there's a moment in time in which the Spirit applies it, and he applies it through these steps. And when we look at every one of these, they always say that it is the gift of, it's a gift of grace, it's a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But the effectual call is what we've already looked at, where God calls us, and, enabling, and what enables us to respond to the gospel is regeneration, the new birth. We respond, and it is actually our response, uh, with faith and repentance, even though those are given to us as gifts, they are things that we do. We respond Repenting, turning away from our sin in faith, embracing the finished work of Christ, trusting in him. As a result of that, as we saw last week, is the very central doctrine of justification where we are declared righteous. God gives us the record, the merit that belongs to Jesus. That's given to us. And then our record of demerit, of disobedience, is given to Christ. He pays for that on the cross, and we take uh, rather than paying a price, we enjoy the benefits of his obedience. And that is the central doctrine of 
uh, that came out of the Reformation was to restore that to its rightful place, justification. And most of the time, people then jump on to the next doctrine of sanctification, and they forget the little one that we're going to talk about today, which is adoption. Adoption is absolutely central to the life of a believer, and I suspect that because it is so greatly ignored today, or forgotten, I should say, that there are many people, uh, believers, everyday folks that sit in the pews, who wrestle with a lot of issues of what it means to be a follower of Christ and don't have those issues settled in their mind because they're not aware or have not delved in too deeply into the doctrine of adoption. So we want to spend some time and look at that today. So let's start. If I can have uh, some bold volunteer read question and answer number 34, somebody will do that. All right, what an amazing act, uh, answer. It again sets up the fact that it's an act of God's free grace. In fact, we have a lot of scripture to look up today, so I'm going to start writing some on the board. But for now, would somebody look up 1 John 3.1? 1 John 3.1. Somebody else, John, not 1 John, the letter, but the gospel. John 1.12, and then Romans 8.17. So those three. 1 John 3.1, John 1.12, and Romans 8. 17, all right, so behold the manner of love that the Father has shown us that we should be called children of God. So there's right from the very beginning this, this idea, and it's, it's, it's um, what translation were you reading from, Jared? ESV, okay. So shown is maybe not the best word. Um, it's actually, say again. Okay, I don't, I, yeah, I think it probably is going to be the same throughout, but the word really is, has bestowed upon us. He's bestowed that sonship on us. It's an act of God's free grace. And then the second part, where we're received into the number, and we have, the number meaning all the saints, and we have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Would somebody read John one twelve? Okay, so here he is um, giving us this privilege, this right. We're brought into the number. And then Romans 8.17 all right, so this idea that then we're brought into this number, what does that mean? Well, the number of people are actually God's family, and so we actually become not just children, but heirs of all the blessings that Jesus himself shares. So that's just a, a, a brief look at some of the scripture passages that are behind the catechism question, but let's go ahead and dive into that. And, and just by way of reminder, these things, when they happen, are happening in a logical order, not necessarily... Uh, you know, some kind of long temporal order. So in other words, adoption is something that happens immediately upon your conversion. God calls you, and with that regeneration, where you are born again, given that new spirit, that new heart of flesh, and so on, you respond in, in conversion, and when you've done that, Jesus, uh, 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 God justifies you with Jesus' righteousness, and you are adopted. It's not something that happens in time. It happens right away. Anyone who accepts Jesus is immediately brought into his family. And that's an important thing to bring out because some people wrestle with that. I'm a believer. I know I trust in Christ, but am I one of his children? And the idea is that as soon as you repent and as soon as you believe, then not only are you justified, but you are adopted as a son. So, by the way, you're going to hear me a lot saying son and not children. There are a few places, John primarily uh, which we've already read, who uses children more often, not always, but more often, 
whereas Paul almost exclusively refers to us as sons. Before I go any further, why do you think that would be? Let's, let's just kind of put it out there and see what you all think. When he refers to believers generally as sons of God. No, I think you guys are all onto something, but really the one thing you really want to look at is just the way imagery is used in Scripture because it does throw some people, and maybe, you know, you haven't thought about much about this because perhaps you're not, your mind's not running in these circles, but there are people out there saying, well, this is just the patriarchy. This is just, you know, the ancient world and whatever. It's not. Uh, throughout a good chunk of, of uh, the Scripture, uh, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ, right? It's given this feminine language because in that instance, the metaphor, the image, because, you know, all these images represent spiritual realities, right? So Jesus is the bridegroom. We collectively are the bride, this idea that we then um, are united to him. The men don't go, or at least I don't think, go around saying, oh, that's terrible. You know, how can I be a woman when I'm a man and all that kind of stuff? So we understand and we accept the imagery there. The imagery that's being used in, when, we're, when Paul consistently refers to us as sons of God is, again, based on this union with Christ. This time, the idea that we're brought into the family. And in this case, it is the son of God, right, who becomes the Templar. And so we ourselves become sons of God. Again, the imagery being that we are like him. And we're going to talk a little bit about what it means that we are like him in just a moment. But the, what, the first thing I think we want to do is define what adoption actually is. And in terms of scripture, again, you know, what I've, uh, in my 18 years being here, what I've learned is that most people are uh, coming out of baptistic, broad evangelical type churches. So maybe you don't run into this thinking as much. But in the mainline churches, you know, your Lutherans, your Episcopal and all that, for about 100 years now, <clears throat> and by the way, that is unfortunately where the majority of people who claim to be believers are found in those churches. So this stuff is relevant. But the majority of, uh, of the view now uh, is that this word adoption um, basically means that we are all the children of God. And you hear that you know, all the time. You hear it in Roman Catholic theology. You hear it in you know, mainline or modernist Protestant theology. The idea is that since we all have the same creator, we're all brothers and sisters of one another. So it's the universal brotherhood of man. And perhaps you've heard that if you've been to anything outside of an evangelical church. You'll hear that kind of language. And so what's happened is a lot of the theologians then look at the language of adoption in Scripture and say, aha, that's what it is. That's what it is that justifies this kind of view. And like all things, there is a, a, an element of truth in that, right? In Acts chapter 17, um, when Paul is... Um, um, preaching to the, um, the Greek folks over on Mars Hill in the Areopagus in Athens. Uh, he says that God has made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. So this idea that all, God, all men are created by God, he also says in that same passage, Acts seventeen twenty six, that we also are God's offspring. So when you hear that word offspring, you might think, okay, so see, he's saying that we are his sons. And there's no doubt that because we all belong to the same human race, as it were, that we are to look at our fellow man, regardless of who they are or where they're from or anything. We're supposed to look at them uh, with that same, you know, loving concern. And Jesus taught us that, that we are to love our neighbor. 
uh, just as much as ourselves. And you can find that in you know, any number of passages. Um, the scripture even in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 9 refers to, refers to God as the father of spirits. So there's this idea there of in that regard the fatherhood of God. But generally that's not what, what they mean when they talk about this universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Uh, what they're getting at is that we're just, you know, all God's children. God loves us, you know, equally. And this has driven all sorts of theology, which, um, like everything else, anything that's happened in modernism will eventually, and has eventually worked its way into evangelicalism. We see that on other fronts, and I'm already seeing little smidgens of this working itself in through social justice and those kind of things. And there is no doubt that we are connected because we're all human beings. We're all under, uh, under God's authority. We were all created by God, and we are all his creation. But the idea that because of that, it doesn't matter, God loves us all equally the same, and he's going to bring us all to himself and so on, is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that the whole human race sinned in Adam, and because of that, we all fell in Adam. And because of that, we have been alienated from God, and that is the fundamental issue that's actually missing from all of modern theology. And you go to mainline Protestant churches and much of Roman Catholicism today, the one element that's missing is that alienation. What you constantly hear is that God loves you and accepts you just the way you are. It doesn't matter, the universal brotherhood of man and so on. When you sit there and you say, okay, how do these churches allow people who are openly, for example, openly homosexual and transgender and all that, and so clearly scripture teaches did that just pop out of thin air. It did not pop out of thin air. It started with the modernist movement of the 1910s, which itself had its roots in the romanticism of the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, but that's a story for another day. But if you would have gone to um, you know, Emerson Fostick or one of those uh, uh, pastors in 1910 and told him what you're teaching is going to result in women pastors and gay pastors and all that other stuff, they would have said, of course not, that's ridiculous. All we're saying is, and then he would tell you about the universal brotherhood and we're all loved and so on. But it's a natural consequence. It flows out of that view because God loves all people equally and doesn't matter who they are, what they are, doesn't matter what views they hold, whether they're believers in Christ or whether or not. We're all God's children. He loves us equally. He's going to bring us all to himself. It's not from them much of a leap to sit there and say, well, if that's the case, and it doesn't matter what you believe, then it doesn't matter what you do, and you can get to all sorts of things that you accept. And uh, it's, it's um, an area of concern because that's beginning to creep already into the evangelical church as well. So we are not all uh, uh, the children of God because by nature... After the fall, we are alienated, and it is that alienation, that separation from God that you see all throughout Scripture and all throughout like, even the rites of the church. Uh, today, we're going to baptize some children. What does baptism signify? It signifies that those who were once alienated from God, not part of the covenant, are being brought into a covenant relationship. They're no longer alienated. They no longer belong to the world they become holy. The word holy is just the word for being set apart. They have been set apart from the world. So that idea is so strong throughout all the different aspects of Christianity, and yet it is the one element that gets removed. And if you think about it, once you remove the alienation from God, what do you no longer need? 
Salvation. Yeah, I mean, this whole thing falls apart. If there's no alienation, there's no need for reconciliation, restoration, redemption, and so on. Which is why, um, oh, I wish I would have had the quote here. I would, should have thought of finding it. Um, the person who said that, you know, modernism of today is basically like a, a Christ of no redemption, you know, bringing in people who have need of no salvation, and so on and so on. I mean, it's, it's just a little big old happy kumbaya fest kind of thing. And um, what you'll notice in a lot of uh, churches today, there's a, there's a real decline in mainline Protestant churches and modernist Roman Catholic churches. And the reason is, why do you need to go to church uh, if, if there's no need for salvation? Um, after I left my last church, I tried staying there, after I resigned, I should say, staying there you know, for worship, but you know, people kept coming up to me, Pastor John, will you do this? And it's like, no, you gotta let the new guy do that. So for a year, we attended uh, the church of a friend while we were looking, and then we found this. And uh, he was a, uh, or still is, a PCUSA pastor. He would say he was theologically conservative, socially liberal. Yeah, it wasn't quite true. Uh, he thought he was. But, um, you know, and in his church, which is, an, uh, you know, like most PCUSA churches, they kept all the nice properties and all the, you know, he had that beautiful property and all the staff and all the stuff. And he was wondering why young people after a while sat there and said, I'm gone. And I'm like, there's nothing that you have to offer them. Absolutely nothing that you give them. There's no need for, I mean, it's the, it's the old Robert Fulgham book from the 1980s, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. I know to be nice to people. I don't need to have you tell me that, that kind of thing. So that's why adoption, as you're going to see, is such a big deal because it's the starting point, as always, is the bad news, and that bad news is that we are alienated from God. And not just alienated, we all belong to a family. Who does Jesus say that we belong to after the fall? Anybody know? Yeah, actually, Satan. He says in John chapter 8, you are of your father, the devil. Now, just think about what that is. What the scripture is actually teaching that only some people are the children of God, and they become the children of God through adoption. Now, these are sinful people. So it's not that they were somehow better and God looked and said, I like those better than the others. Again, this is the idea of unconditional election that God chooses us out of his own good uh, you know, and free grace and mercy, not because of anything within us. But he draws us to himself and he makes us part of his family. And what he's really doing is he's taking us as orphans. And when you think about it, what's an orphan? A per- person who no longer has a family or whose family does not care for them. We sometimes think of orphans as only being those uh, whose parents uh, have died. And actually, according to the scripture, uh, all, all you have to have is the father die because of the centrality of the father, and that person was considered an orphan. But when I go, want to go with that is to recognize that people in the world do have a universal family and do have a universal brotherhood, but it's not the one that most people think of. It is, in fact, brotherhood where we belong to Satan. And the devil is not a good father. He doesn't care for you. He doesn't provide for you. He doesn't look out for you. So you end up being, uh, you know, homeless. You end up being um, not cared for. And that is the the condition of human beings everywhere. Uh, Some of you might know that my mom uh, was an orphan but not because her parents died, but because her father literally 
left and walked away from them. And she went from home to home trying to find a place where she would be cared for. And, you know, she was out for a long time until she was 13. The woman who I consider to be my grandmother, who she considers to be her mom, took her in at that age and gave her a, a home and gave her the one thing that she had not had in all those years, which was care and love and concern and so on. And that is what happens to us in adoption. We do belong to someone before we're saved. We belong to the evil one, and he's a terrible, terrible parent. And that's the thing that we have to communicate to people and that we have to feel when we, when we wrestle with this idea uh, you know, of the importance of adoption. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, that we were aliens or alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise without hope and without God in the world. And what a terrible situation that is. Without hope and without God in the world. And people think, you know, again, they've been, they've been bluffed. It's a, it's a wicked lie into this idea that we're all the children of God and he's got us covered. But no, the one to whom we belong outside of Christ is the evil one, and he is a t- terrible parent. So the good news of adoption is that when we become believers, then he actually does take us into his family. And for the very first time as human beings, we actually do have a father, spiritual father, who cares for us and provides for us. And we see that, of course, through the provision of Christ, right? Um, So before I go on, any questions on any of that? Does that make sense, Lang? So what Lang is getting at is that alienation is a big deal, and that's what I'm trying to highlight here is just how big a deal that is, that separation from God is the fundamental human dilemma, fundamental human problem. You know, there are guys are in Washington, D.C., and uh, at the World Economic Forum, and, you know, Klaus Schwab, and all those guys are trying to figure out, where will we be without Bill Gates? And all these guys are trying to figure out the world. They're all addressing the wrong problem. Our fundamental human problem is that alienation, that separation from God. But what Lenga's pointing out is it's not as bad as it could be. I would qualify that yet. What he does is he gives us a period in which, I mean, as the catechism even talks about, the fall leads to this this estate, to use the old language, this condition of sin and misery that's pretty horrible. I mean, you see it in the war that's going on right now in Israel. You've been hearing about the atrocities, people being dragged out and shot and, you know, and and murdered and raped and all this kind of stuff that's been going on just in the last uh, 36 hours. And it's horrible. Uh, the things that we can do to one another. That alienation is pretty stark, but yes, it's not permanent yet. Romans one eighteen, which we're going to look at next week, Lord willing, uh, for, for the sermon, um, talks about the wrath of God is being poured out. Too often we think of the wrath of God, the, the coming condemnation as future. It is already being poured out, but not yet in its fullness. So God uh, provides that opportunity for us to come to Christ. And he provided it, by the way, to the people of Noah, but their time ran out, and which is the lesson for us. That, that time will eventually come to an end. And what that should do is it really should spark incredible wonder in us when we realize just what it is that through the grace of God we have uh, been spared from. You know, that alienation, that final condemnation. So, but good point. He does not immediately move to full and utter condemnation. So there's a few things that I want to say. If this adoption is the case, there's certain things that we need to point out. First of all, is that it happens immediately. We've already been talking about that. Uh, it's, it's, it's something that happens in one shot when you become a believer, 
it's not something that you are becoming the Son of God. You're not working your way up to that. And that, again, should be part of your assurance to know I am right now a child of God. I am right now a son or daughter of the king. And that's not something future or developing. It is right now. The other one is that it remains in effect permanently, that it will never go away. It won't be retracted. This is, of course, right along the lines with all the other things that we teach, which is that you don't lose your salvation because your salvation never depended upon you in the first place. Right? Jesus says, in John 10, 29, that no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And that is an especially key point for us to remember. Your adoption is irrefragable, unshakable, unmovable, unchangeable, immutable, whatever language you want to use. And then this last thing that I want to focus on is that adoption is not only something which God does immediately, which is permanent, but it's something of which you are made conscious something that you yourself experience, right? Galatians 4, uh, verse 6 6 says that because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the Holy Spirit in our heart crying, Abba, which was just the, the Aramaic word for dad, daddy, that kind of thing, Abba, Father, that that's something that's in our heart, right? Uh, Romans 8, 16 says that the spirit himself will bear witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So that's an important point to recognize is that we are made conscious of our adoption, our sonship, and it happens through the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit. Now, I want to take the time that we have remaining to talk about that because over the years I've heard people not understand what it means that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. And they're constantly like looking for this emotive experience that if you don't have, because that's what they kind of imagine that that's what this means, that there's some kind of emotive thing where the Holy Spirit talks to you and you hear and then you respond and, you know, and who knows what else. So we want to be able to unpack a little bit of what it means that um, the Spirit bears witness. Uh, so first, let me just say this. Uh, that means that witness is a joint witness. It is not just your own spirit, your own heart, your own mind. It says, I'm a son of God, regardless of whatever you know, God himself says. I, and, nor is it just the spirit speaking away from you, and you have no idea. It is a joint testimony of the two of you. And what, what we want to do is we want to unpack how that, how that works. Let me ask you this. How do we hear the spirit speak today? It's not a trick question. Through his word. Okay. So there's our starting point. It is through the word. You know, we read in Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony, right? Go to the Bible. Remember, that's just language. The law and the testimony means to the scripture. Go to the scripture. In Isaiah 8.20, it says that if uh, a person, um, you know, who claimed to be a prophet, does not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. It is in the scripture, then, that we're going to find uh, uh, the Holy Spirit speaking, the Holy Spirit testifying. The only way that you can know what the Spirit is saying is in Scripture. So, you know, if you sit there, because again, I've met folks who are looking for this emotive thing where the Holy Spirit was speaking to me and then I responded in my spirit and, you know, know, all this kind of uh, stuff that begins to be, you know, to come out of that. God speaks out of His Spirit. That's how His Spirit speaks. So what does it mean then that we respond and that our spirit testifies with His? Well, very, very simple. If God enables you to 
to agree with the things that you read in Scripture to be able to say them. Uh, in in um, Romans chapter 10, it talks about that we are enabled to agree to the things of Scripture, right? So uh, if you're able to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the Son of God who died for my sins, and I believe that he died for my sins, you know, things of that nature. If you're able to say that in agreement with Scripture, then your own testimony is matching that of the Scripture. Does that make sense? So that's how you see that, uh, that coming together. When Romans eight sixteen says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, it's the Spirit speaking, saying, this is what it takes to be a Son of God, and you saying, oh, I've done that. I do believe in this Jesus. It is real, and that kind of thing. And when we say that, then we can say for sure with assurance, I am a true believer, and therefore, I am indeed a child of God. And you can have that assurance. Is that good? Okay? No pushback on that? Okay, you're all good Presbyterians, so I'm not going to sit there and say, but I had a revelation last night. Okay, all right. There are just a few things that I do want to touch upon. Uh, when we talk about sonship, and we only have a few minutes left, um, there is an important difference that we have to cover. Now, if you were in our officer training class on Friday, you heard this, so um, you probably don't want to be the first one to answer. So what is the most important difference between our sonship and that of Jesus' sonship? Are they exactly the same? Come on, you guys know this. I'm, te- I'm teeing it up. It's not even a fastball. It's just right there on the tee. You just got to step up. And Jesus is God's son, yes. So how is, are we not then sons of God and he is the son of God? So is there any difference? Say again. He wasn't adopted. That's absolutely true. And, and, and that makes a huge difference because he is God. There's, there we go. See, there we go. I, I'm telling you, it was not a trick question. Jesus alone remains God himself, and we, we might want to say a naturally begotten son of God in, in that regard. Um, so when we become, um, by the way, does that make our, ad- so when we become sons of God by adoption, we do not become divine. We do not become God. Just want to kind of state the obvious. Does that make our sonship any less real or any less valuable? No. Um, this guy, Russell Moore, was the, uh, the head of the Southern Baptist Convention for a while. Does that name ring a bell with anybody? Okay. And I, he's gotten into some controversy as of late, so maybe this is no longer a good story to tell. But about some, uh, coming up on 20 years ago, he adopted a couple of Russian kids. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a process where they go through you know, they apply, and they get this and that and whatever. So at one point, uh, the agency or whatever in Russia had him fly out there and to do whatever paperwork and sign and that other stuff. It was not where, where they would bring the boys home, but that's where they kind of made it official. And so he flies out there, um, sees the, 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 these two boys uh, who were, who were um, going to be adopted at the same time, and signs whatever paperwork it's now official they gave him a couple of pictures of the boys and that's what he had and then he flew back home and and in time he actually came and got them and so on but on that flight home where he's it's officially signed but he only has the two pictures he's sitting you know it's a long flight and he's sitting next to a lady and they're talking about what he's just done and so on 
And she's looking at him and saying, are they, are they brothers? And he's like, yes, they're brothers. And no, 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 no. I mean, are they really brothers? And you hear what she's saying. She's saying, were they bo- both born of the same mom, that kind of thing. And he's telling her, yes, because they are now adopted, regardless of where they come, came from, they are really brothers. And there he's highlighting something that's so important, you know, in adoption, is that your sonship, while you don't become God, your sonship is no less real than that of Jesus. Did you just hear what I just said? Your sonship is no less real than that of God, than that that of Jesus. And that means that, as we read, you are heirs. You have all the privileges you are a brother of Jesus. Now think about that, right? Did you ever have a big brother who took care of you in school? That kind of thing, right? Somebody who could look out for you? The guy looking out for you is the one who made all things, who even now sits on the throne of heaven and superintends all of history, right? In perfect accord with the eternal decree of God. That, who, that is who is your brother. You can see that so clearly in the book of Hebrews that again and again in the, in the opening chapters refers to us, refers to him as our elder brother. So we have all the privileges and the rights and with the time that we have remaining, what I want us to see is the wonder of what that means. And we'll never be anything more, I mean, we'll never be anything other, not more, anything other than just creatures of God. We never become um divine ourselves there's that creator creature distinction but we do become something more than just creatures we become children of the living god so let's take a look at some of the wonderful things that that is that that entails uh, because we are brought into this birthright we get all the privileges and everything Uh, would somebody look up galatians 4 i put up there 17 but let's do 16 and 17 who's got that if you can read that all right what an amazing thing so you're no longer a slave, no longer an orphan. You are a son. By the way, the language of slave is um, language from the Roman Empire where the sons had full run of the house. Slaves were in the house, but uh, they, they did not have the rights and the privileges and so on. So, yes, we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. What an amazing thing. Um, Okay, let's take a look at Romans 8, 15, who's, and uh, 14 and 15. Who's got that? One of the, uh, the things that we challenge men in this, in this church is to take very seriously their, their roles as fathers because it is so absolutely formative in the life of their children, of our children. Uh, their view of God is formed through us first, through us who've had the privilege of being a father. And uh, those who have not had uh, that picture wrestle that much harder with understanding what it means to have a God who is loving and so on. And what this passage is telling us is that our sonship is one of no fear. Uh, you have a God who, who, who is for you and not against you, a God who cares for you, who loves you, who provides for you. And, um, and sometimes that means discipline, right? Uh, as uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 12 will we'll make very clear that it's, but it tells us that, that he chastises us because we are sons and because of his love. It's not punishment. It's not, um, it's not meant to be spiteful and so on. 
So it's an amazing passage, Romans 8, 14 and 15, showing us that we live in a place of love and not of fear with God as our Father. Uh, how about Hebrews four sixteen? Okay, so we can with confidence come before the throne of grace. People of God have to re- recognize, we have to recognize that that is an immense privilege that is not universal. People throughout the world can be praying all they want, and their prayers basically bounce off the ceiling, as it were. They are not heard, uh, not in the same way that we are. And, and, and what do we mean? Does that mean that God's not aware of their needs? God is completely aware. But it's kind of different. So, for example, if I'm in my study working, um, not anybody can just come in. If you, you know, not anybody, if I'm doing something, there's going to be times where I say, you know, I don't have time right now, whatever. But when my children were little, they could come in whenever they wanted. My kids could. Quite frankly, your kids could not. <laughs> and in most cases, the adults couldn't either during that time. They had privileges with, uh, which others did not. As their father, they were allowed to come uh, during that time. And that's an important point to recognize is that we are able to come before the throne of grace. We're able to be heard and God is always welcoming to us, regardless. It's a tremendous privilege. Okay, how about Psalm 103, verse 13? And if you're not looking up Psalm 103, be looking up the next one, or the next one. We're ready to go. Anyone, Psalm 103? 13? All right, and there's many, many other passages like that that we could have looked at. Romans 8, 29 through 35, and so on, would be an example God, because we are his children, shows us compassion. Compassion. How about Hebrews 12, 6 through 11? That's a little longer. What do we got there? There we are. Thank you. When God chastises us, it's not because he hates us. It's not because he's against us. He chastises and disciplines us because of his fatherly love, because of his care for us. And it's, like it says, it's never pleasant when you go through those moments but God is using that to ultimately, ultimately produce greater fruit in you that you might you know, be conformed further to the image of Christ. So even our discipline is uh, a further sign and evidence of God's tender care for us. Okay, just a few more. How about Lamentations 3, 31 through 32? So here's a God who will never leave you, will never forsake you. You heard those exact words from Jesus himself, that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, he will always have compassion. How about Ephesians 4.30? All right, so a further privilege is that we have actually been sealed unto that day of redemption by the Holy Spirit of Christ. Because we are his, we're always going to be his, and he's got us all the way through the end. Okay, so two more. I only have one up there more, but uh, I'll read the last one. First Peter 1, 3 through 4. All right, so there's this inheritance that awaits us as children of God. We are full heirs. And it's, it's this, uh, you know, talks about undefiled, imperishable. I mean, it, it's, it's there and it is uncorruptible and, um, and, it's, and it's ours. And in the very last passage that's not up there, because uh, I ran out of room, is First John um, 3, 2, and it says, It does not yet appear what we shall be. Uh, skipping a little bit, it says that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And so this idea that our sonship will eventually take us to the point where we are fully conformed to the image of Jesus. We don't become divine, but we become like him in our behavior and our thoughts and so on. 
So that's a little bit just about sonship. We are uh, out of time. Uh, There's a lot there, but I wanted you to just kind of hear some of those privileges. For those of you who have had loving earthly fathers like I did, it's a great blessing, uh, you know, beyond what one can, uh, you know, really appreciate uh, unless you've not had one. Uh, But it begins to give you a picture of the kind of love and care that we have uh, from our uh, Heavenly Father. For those whose dads maybe were not as uh, reflective of that, uh, the only thing I can say is, um, first of all, that I'm sorry for that. Um, And in my own experience, don't know what that is like. But I can just simply uh, direct you to read these passages, to go over them, to understand that God's fatherhood and God's um, care for you is very, very different. Um, it is coming from a point of a place of love and care. And even when he seems like he's not doing what we want and he's disciplining us and, and chastising us, he's doing it for our own good. And he always does it in a loving way. It's never spiteful. It's never cruel. Uh, we have a God um, who is truly, truly compassionate to his people. So it's an amazing privilege. I wish that this doctrine of adoption were more um, heralded in our circles in the, in the Christian church. It seems to have been forgotten in these days. And I think because of that, it's robbed so many believers of the rich joy that comes from knowing our position, where we are, that we are heirs with Christ, that we enjoy even now all the privileges and benefits of being called sons and daughters of God Most High. To know that when God looks at you and he can say the same thing that he did of Jesus uh, at, at his baptism and at his transfiguration when the father said, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. And to really let that sink deep into your bones, it should change your whole approach to God, to your brothers and sisters in Christ and you know, just to your own Christian life. So did I see a hand? Was that a hand, Ling? Yeah. I appreciate that. Uh, and I think it's the testimony of every believer, but we have to grow into its realization. I'll end by simply saying that some of you have heard me make reference to Jack Miller, who, uh, I mean, he died in 1996, 97, so he hasn't been with us for a while. But he introduced something that he, it was a course that he used with a lot of folks called the Sonship Course. And, you know, you say, what's the Sonship Course? And it was really just working your way through the order of salvation and really understanding how that applies pastorally, how it applies, you know, devotionally maybe is the better way of putting it. But why would he call it sonship course? You know, because why didn't he call it the order of salvation course? Because he was really saying all this is the privilege of being a son. And it's just so often been dropped. And, and, and there's a reason why he uses that language. It's something that we need to recapture. Anyway, let's go ahead and pray. We'll get ready for worship, but uh, we'll have uh, plenty of things to reflect on as we go into worship to worship God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your goodness uh, you created us, and even in our rebellion where we spit in your face and we uh, rebelled against the one who made, made us, uh, you have shown us love and compassion and grace, and you have brought us into your family. Uh, so, Father, you simply could have redeemed us and left us as mere servants. And that would have been great and gracious and wonderful and, um, uh, and more than what we deserved. And yet in your immense compassion and mercy, you have not only redeemed us, not only brought us into your kingdom and into your house where we could have simply been slaves of the king rather than slaves of the evil one, 
but instead you have made us sons of the King, the sons of God. What an amazing thing. We thank you for this awesome privilege. We pray that the truth of it would seep down deep into the marrow of our very bones, that we would um, feel the full force of the truth of it and be able to live lives of gratitude because of it. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.